football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Coleman and Greg Thomas. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, the weekly podcast about the largest division of college football. We welcome you to episode number 287 or season 15, episode 9. It's the podcast for September 27th of 2021. I'm Pat Coleman, executive editor of D3Football.com. I'm Greg Thomas. I'm the Around the Nation columnist. And Pat, we have a full show this week, but we're ready because we know this podcast goes the full 60 minutes, sometimes 68 minutes, but we prepare for these 60 minutes so that we can give the same effort at the top of the show as we do in every thought of mine. And we do that for our listeners. Heck yeah. I mean, we might have had a running clock situation for the first couple of weeks of this season, but we're definitely finding our stride. And I think if we could say anything about this podcast over the past 15 years, it's that we are always trying to stuff 70 minutes of content into a 60-minute bag or something like that. I definitely have been known to spend three hours of editing time trying to take 78 minutes down to 72 I'm not willing to take out any content. I'm just trying to take out all the ums and ahs. And in the old days, you know, maybe taking out one spot where Keith would reiterate back to something that we had already said once or preview something that we were about to say 20 minutes later. Or I would take out some ill-advised joke that clearly wasn't going to land, even though I didn't have any uh, audience to workshop it in front of. But that is the, that's the goal. We are trying to get you the most efficient use of your Monday morning time. Monday afternoon, Tuesday morning, Tuesday afternoon, whenever you choose to listen to the podcast, we want to make sure that you have the ability to listen to it at 100%. Because if you try to speed it up and you drive it at 125% or 150%, it's really difficult to understand. And we don't really like when you do that. That's all I'm saying. Listen to the podcast at the uh, appropriate appropriate speed. Uh, great week of football. Uh, if you were not, I had a friend of mine on uh, Facebook who was completely disenchanted by uh, whichever teams it was he was watching at, you know, the mega scholarship level and was trying to and, and doesn't like the NFL lately and is just going to swear off of uh, football entirely. He went to a Division three school and I said, hey, just FYI, if you had watched this game that was in, say, prime time last night between two top 10 teams, you would be singing a completely different tune about college football. Not all college football is played in 100,000-seat stadiums between teams with 80-whatever scholarships between them. There is some great football going on at the Division three level, and boy, it seems like we saw a whole bunch of it uh, here in Week 4. We certainly did. We had we, we opened this week with three uh, matchups with, between top 25 teams, and uh, one of them, the headliner, really, really showed up and really showed out. Yeah, we'll start with that top 10 matchup. It was uh, It really almost had the stage to itself. Uh, basically, uh, the Washington and Jefferson Case Western Reserve game also going on at the same time and also some other games. But uh, I would say the eyes of almost everybody who's a neutral Division three fan or just a fan of what's going on among the, uh, you know, the big news in the division had to be watching that game between second ranked Mary Harden Baylor and seventh ranked Harden Simmons. And, you know, it started not at all like one would expect, right? I mean, obviously back and forth a little bit and then bam, 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 Harden Simmons takes advantage of a couple of fumbles and they go up and they go into the locker room up 28 to seven. And I am like, you know, I am like ripping up our coverage plans for next week. We have a, a feature story planned that we thought we might have to change out. I'm looking for Harden Simmons photos, which I'd not necessarily prepared to do. And uh, Coach Fredenberg is saying, what is everything's everything's going wrong or something like that? He's like had one sentence to say on the uh to, to his uh to his broadcast on the way into the locker room. And um yeah, and then the entire second 30 minutes completely, completely different. Absolutely two completely different games. UMHB comes out in the second half, erases that 21 point deficit, which by the way, when was the last time they were down 21? They don't ever give up 21, let alone trail by 21. But you know, they erased that 21-point deficit uh, really quickly, I think within three drives of the of the third quarter. And yeah. then it's a fourth-quarter game, and UMHB has all of the momentum. The fans in the Cathedral, it looked like it was packed. Uh, they're going crazy. Uh, the team is energized in a way that they just weren't in the first half. And, you know, the, the end game seemed pretty – written in stone at that point once once umhb found their footing found 
found some offense and Harden Simmons really, you know, just tried to withstand that storm without punching back, really. The uh, the last time that uh, Mary Harden Baylor lost a game by more than 21, you have to go back to uh, the second round of the 2009 playoffs. That's the year they went up to Central and won in the first round, and then they went to Linfield and lost 53-21 in the second round. They may have trailed a game by 21 at some other point and lost by less than 21. I did not go through box score by box score, scoring summary by scoring summary. This is just the last time that they lost by that much. I, I was There's the thing, right? So 12 minutes into the second half, that game is already tied, and then it did not... You know, the wheels didn't fully fall off for Harden-Simmons. This is one of the things I was impressed by is that, you know, they did give up all the, those three scores and did not look super good doing it. Or, or Mary Harden-Baylor looked like Mary Harden-Baylor, right? Um, but Harden-Simmons, you know, strung together a couple of first downs. You know, they used some clock. They did a couple of things on offense. And also, I think they got a defensive stop somewhere in, those, uh, in, in, in that uh, space as well. But, you know... Obviously, uh, it, it's it was a very difficult matchup for them to try to stop the, uh, the the big guy who's if you didn't know Brandon Jordan's name before you should now. Yes, and that was the, he was the difference I think in the in the second half. Um, Kyle King was great passing the ball in the second half, but I think we really got introduced to the next UMHB star there in Brandon Jordan. Uh, Jordan has the kind of size he's listed at 6'6", 240, and he that looks legitimate on the field. Uh, that is uncommon size in division three, and there might not be more than a handful of corners that can really hope to cover him. Uh, Harden Simmons had Jordan covered well on a number of his clutch receptions there in the second half, but he was just bigger and stronger than the defenders. Yeah, that's going to be an unfair matchup for a lot of teams going down the stretch. I think it was held to like two catches for eight yards in the first half and then just basically went off in the second half, ended up with six catches for 101 yards, including two touchdowns, including the one that's on the front page of D3Football.com right now from Saturday night. And you will learn more about Brandon Jordan on D3Football.com this week. Ooh, that's a teaser. Oh, that's a teaser and a half, right? Um, you know, you and I talked uh, bef- before putting the podcast together about just what we make of Harden Simmons' Coming out of this, it seems like, you know, I went way, way back in 1998, the the game that we've talked about before on the podcast that in, kind of inspired us to actually do D3Football.com because we did, we had a, a season and a half of D3 Hoops and we kind of held off on doing a football site because there was a football site and we didn't want to, you know, just kind of waltz in and take over. Um, it would, uh, Ray Martell, my, uh, my friend from... Uh, from WFAN and from Catholic U and all that uh, went up to see uh, Lycoming play at Widener on October afternoon in 98 and um, Widener's up 13-2 with three minutes left Lyco's pinned back on its one yard line and goes the length of the field twice including a two-point conversion I believe to win 15 to 13 something like that or 15-14 somewhere in those areas and Widener player coming off the field uh, is just muttering to himself saying, I don't know what it is. I think it's a jinx. They had lost so many games to Lyco in similar fashion. And I have to think if you're the, the, the reason this long story is being told uh, is because I just compare that to how it must feel to be Harden Simmons, right? You've been in this position and you've had this game taken away from you in so many ways, whether it's a you know, a 40 yard field goal, getting rushed onto the field at the final gun, uh, you know, blowing a 21 point second half lead, uh, the stuff that happened this spring, so many ways in which uh, Mary Harden Baylor has really dominated this series in just kind of bizarre fashion. On the other side of any, any great comeback is a difficult loss. And for Harden Simmons, this isn't, like you said, this isn't new. They go through this with UMHB. It seems like almost every year, um, but this one has to be as tough as any, as they've been handed by the crew in recent history. Um, over and over, the Cowboys get right there. They're right on the precipice, but they just can't quite close the deal. Even after losing that 21-point lead on Saturday, as you said, they they did bow up a little bit, and it didn't avalanche on them. Um, and the Cowboys did muster one final drive after they went down 34-28. to 28. 
Um, that drive ended when Jaden Smith stepped in front of a pretty good-looking pass from Kyle Jones, really, uh, right at the two-yard line. You hear the defense chant from the Crusader fans. Snap back, three-step drop, looking near sidelines, has a receiver, and it's intercepted at the five-yard line. Picked off by Jaden Smith, the senior out of Colleen Ellison, and the crew take over first and ten. Just a great break on the ball by Jaden Smith. He's been kind of our savior in both games in 2021 against Harden Simmons. He's the one that knocked about ball out of the receiver's hands right there. Jalen made the interception to, to seal this game for us. You know, they they had a decent shot at, at a tying touchdown there and possibly a, a go-ahead extra point. They're right there, and they just, every time, that big yellow jersey just doesn't let it happen. What do we make of them from a polling standpoint? I mean, this year... They didn't even play a D3 team out of conference. Um, you know, they seem to do everything but beat Mary Harden Baylor. So you could put them number three, right? Or maybe they're not that. Maybe it's the team that, you know, struggled a little bit to beat Bellhaven. I don't I don't ever know what to make of Harden Simmons. I just kind of seem to have to take on faith every year that because they play Mary Harden Baylor well, they must be really good. They just don't play anybody else. Uh, and sometimes they don't play anybody else in Division Three outside their conference, but they definitely don't seem to have non-conference uh, results that help me make that uh, choice. That's correct. And that's Harden-Simmons every year, every week, is one of the hardest teams for me to evaluate in the top 25 because they have these results against Mary Harden-Baylor. They get close. They play that team so, so well. And they don't ever beat them. So they're not, I know they're not quite Mary Harden Baylor level, but then who have they beat? And there is a giant gulf between the teams that they beat all of the time and Mary Harden Baylor. And they don't have, they don't have playoff results because they also have a hard time getting away from Mary Harden Baylor in the playoffs when they, when they do make it. Um, They don't have playoff results against other teams that get ranked elsewhere to go by and, yeah, like you said, there's you there's a lot of faith involved with where you put Harden Simmons if you're going to use if you're going to rank them in the top ten or twelve. Um, you know, that's there's not a lot of tangible evidence for that other than they play Mary Harden Baylor really really closely. Uh, that was not, of course, the only big comeback on Saturday. Um, I was, uh, you know, like. A normal Saturday when I'm working the desk from home, kind of have my eye on a little bit of everything. And at one point, I see that uh, Rowan is leading Salve Regina 35 to 10. And then, you know, uh, there's a there's literally 95 games going on on Saturday or 94 games going on on Saturday. So I'm I'm not paying a whole lot of attention to each individual game. And then I come back and I see the final score is Salve Regina 50 to 35. And I'm like, did I did I remember wrong who? was leading before and go back and look at the box scores like nope that is basically exactly 40 unanswered points pretty big uh pretty big comeback obviously for the seahawks and that was good enough for us to go seek out salve coach kevin gilmartin and we brought him in for a tight five i would love to just ask the cliche question right off the bat what did you say to your team at halftime Oh, it was it was actually amazing um, in the fact that we were still really confident, you know. And uh, the biggest thing was that defensively we didn't stop them at all in the first half. They just were going through us. I mean, seven, eight yards, you know, on where third downs, and then they were converting them each time, and then they were making some big plays. Uh, but we were missing tackles more than anything. So, uh, so basically I said to the defense is that we gave up 35 points. We didn't stop them once. And now yeah. they're not going to score again. And then they just started screaming. So it's like, all right, that's all I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's got to be maybe a bit of a luxury, right? That's a pretty easy motivational speech. Mm -hmm. That's it. I mean, like the thing is, though, you know, for for motivating is knowing uh, knowing when to shut up. You know, and I think that was a perfect example of it because because they were ready. They were they were still extremely confident and it it showed. And that's and that's and I thought that that's what I was proud about is that the team still believed in itself. And they were like, we still got this. And then they went out and backed it up. You really think, I mean, going down 35-10, and obviously that was not the halftime score you guys scored before uh, going to the locker room, but going down 35-10 against, you know, a program that 
has a big name yeah. and has had some great seasons in the past 20 whatever years um you still got you still have all that confidence and that sort of thing and they did and that was the whole thing like like uh we went into it and like i, I walked through the offensive section and they were just like coach we're going right down on the field and scoring to start the second half and then it's a two score game and then we're just going to keep going from there and they they believed it i mean like uh you know and they, they're just they believe in one another and i think that's the whole thing is that and that's beautiful you know and especially like you said uh they're zero and three right now or zero and four zero and three no they had a buy uh but you know they went blow for blow with widener and widener's you know on the periphery of your top 25 i don't know if they make it into the top 25 or not but you know they're a real good football team, you know, and so we knew they were a real good football team going into the game. And so we weren't surprised with them scoring. We just were surprised that we weren't, you know, going back and forth with them. Well, and so the second half became more of that. So tell us a little bit about what changed, what, you know, what switch did you flip? And then also, if you could just tell us a little bit about Joey Moriello as a running back. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we went with the, uh, a very unused coaching philosophy where we let them get tired running up and down the field in the first half, you know. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not the typical, typical strategy, but it worked for us. Uh, but I felt like, uh, you know, it was, it was a tempo game and it, it was hot out there and all of a sudden it got, it got hot. And I think that they started to get tired and we were, we were fresh and we were rotating people through and, uh, you know, and then I think it, it started to go. Uh, but you know, you mentioned Joey Moriello. I mean, um, he's having a pretty good year, I would say. <laughs> uh, he just broke the school yeah. record this Saturday for, uh, for rushing yards in a game. So that's always a, that's always a good thing. Um, but you know, when you have a player like that, you know, that teams have to be aware of all of a sudden there's a bunch of other things going on, you know, like, uh, our quarterback's playing really well. Jack McGuire's playing really, he ended up throwing five touchdowns, you know, cause they're trying to stop Joey. And then our receivers are playing really well. Uh, Max DeVito had three touchdown catches and then, uh, Marcelino LaBella had a huge fourth and five, you know, catch. I mean, guys are making plays and, you know, and the, the whole thing is that, they're not just saying it's one guy and they're every time it's like they don't care who it is they just know somebody's going to make a play and uh, and it's fun to be a part of that moriello finished the day with uh, 30 carries for 279 yards and those two touchdowns you mentioned the three touchdown catches by devito and the five touchdown tosses by jack mcguire but what does a win like this and also you know just going through that non-conference schedule right now at 4-0 what does that do for the program I mean, that's the thing. You, you use your non-conference to get ready for your conference games. And uh, we knew we were going into um, a bear of a schedule, you know, with playing two NJACs, uh, playing MIT, who is the uh, current defending uh, new Mac champion. Uh, I don't think they let up a point last week. Uh, you know, MIT didn't. Have, and I don't think they did in week one either. So, I mean, I think their defense is doing really well and they're off. They're winning every game except for against us. So, um you know, I think we're really confident now. And I mean, especially when you, when you're down and your backs against the wall and they look around one another and they believed in one another, I think that that's a huge springboard of confidence. And hopefully we'll be able to, you know, it's it, having confidence is good. Overconfidence is bad. We just got to make sure uh, those heads don't get too swollen real quick. And, you know, we're getting ready for the next one. I was going to say, cause the next one is Western New England, right? And that's, you know, you start the Commonwealth coast conference slate with, the defending champ and that sort of thing. It's, it's right. Uh, you do not get a break here. No, we do not. Uh, and that's, uh, we're jumping right into it. They're a great team. We've always, we've had great games against them almost uh, every year since I've been here. It's, uh, it's been a one or two score game. It's come down to the wire every year. Right, my favorite moment there from coach Gilmartin has to be the deployment of the Rocky Balboa fight strategy versus Clubber Lang. Uh, he let Rowan punch themselves out in the first half and the Seagulls cleaned up in the final 30. Um, you know, obviously, Coach Gilmartin, a little tongue in cheek there, but but I laughed. He's got his he's got his tight five material. He does. His 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 uh he's he's definitely better at it than I am. Uh, see, he talked about the Max Devito with the three touchdown catches. That was three scores in a row that let them cut it from thirty five ten to thirty five to twenty nine, and then uh, Joey Moriello from there. We'll talk a little bit more about this game coming up in a bit as well and of course uh, one more kind of key game from Saturday really wanted to highlight uh, you know we had our eyes I have kind of had my eyes on Randolph making the whole season just kind of trying to scrutinize them I felt like from the get-go they were too high in our poll one of those teams that went uh, and had a, that had a great spring right and parlayed that into a really good preseason ranking that I thought if you just kind of go back and you know look at 2019 and what 
Randolph-Macon and where the ODAC is in the echelon of Division Three football conferences these days. And I could say that because Keith is not on the podcast anymore, though I know Keith would completely agree um, that I just felt like where they debuted in the poll and then kind of drifted upwards was a little bit too high. Now, admittedly, I believe practically every week, or at least every week since that, uh, since they squeaked by Dickinson in week one, Somebody in quick hits every week has picked this uh, has picked Randolph Macon to be the top twenty five team most likely to be upset. This time, uh, we all just gave up, and uh, Riley, our friend from True to the Crew, came in and uh, came in and sniped that away from us. But uh, what a uh, what an interesting game too. Obviously, between two uh, two teams and two programs that know each other very well. It is, and you know, I I believe two years ago or two or three years ago, Randolph Macon had a similar last second drive to get uh, Washington Lee at the end. Uh, this time Washington Lee returns the favor here in Ashland. There was a uh, interesting set of events there at the end of this one with about two minutes to play. Washington Lee rushes up to the Randolph Macon seven yard line. And it looks for all the world. Like the generals are going to go score with about a minute 30 or so left to play, which is going to give the yellow jackets one more chance to answer but General's offensive lineman Bailey Keel gets called for participating in a play without a helmet, which is a 15-yard penalty. He had his helmet ripped off in the in the middle of the play, and then he kept going and pancaked somebody else up up the up the field, and you can't do that. So that 15-yard penalty forced Washington Lee back, and they had to run about four more plays to get back to where they were. They ended up using all of the all of the clock, all of those final two minutes before getting into the end zone on literally the last play of regulation without that penalty, maybe, maybe we get a different result. Maybe Washington Lee doesn't go for two. If there's time left, I don't know who knows very weird circumstance, but interesting about that drive. I believe that was 17 plays, 99 yards comes down to one play from the two and a half yard line. If they score, they win. If they don't, Randolph-Macon will win by one. Brees, Wirtz, flanking Murin. The play. The flip. Brees is in. And Washington and Lee gets revenge for two years ago. A two-point conversion with no time remaining. Your final score this afternoon on day field, Washington and Lee 25, Randolph-Macon 24. What a huge call and what a great piece of work down the stretch losing your starting quarterback. Steven Murin comes in, finishes the drive. They score with no time remaining, and then they get the two-point conversion. Keith and I have talked about this before. We really enjoy when someone can just run the last, in this case, WNL ran the last 7.38 off of the clock and won the game in walk-off fashion, right? We don't say that in football very often, but that's exactly what happened. Not only uh, all the things that you mentioned there, uh, Greg, but also, you know, Jack Pollard, who's the starting quarterback for WNL, he went out with an injury uh, about halfway through that drive, and then his backup came in and finished it. That's true. Um, they finished that off with, a backup quarterback, but you know, WNL runs a system that I think you can interchange quarterbacks a little bit with their, uh, you know, option system run heavy. Um, they did complete some passes though in that, in that drive. So, you know, he didn't just come in and hand off to Brees or keep it on options. Um, he did make some plays down the field and, you know, it's WNL now looks like they have the inside track for the ODAC as much as anybody ever does. Um, maybe we're going to get one of the, one of those classic ODAC seasons where anything can happen. Uh, anything absolutely can. There are two teams tied for first place right now. Uh, WNL and Hampton Sydney, both unbeaten in the conference at two and Oh, they face each other this weekend at Hampton Sydney. Also Ferrum is, uh, three and Oh overall and has not played a conference game yet. So, um, the, the, the slate is completely clean for the Panthers. So that's another team to keep an eye on. We're also watching uh, very very in a very interested fashion this game between Westminster of PA and Grove City. Um, you know, in the in the kind of the pack of the pack is 
you know, we've been watching those two teams played. And then, of course, Case and W&J played. And, you know, we were at the beginning of the season thinking about Carnegie Mellon in this space as well. Um, and Grove City jumped out uh, with a big lead up 20 to nothing. And then that's another one of those games where you, you, you turn away because you think the, the game is not is not something you need to keep an eye on every minute. And then, bam, all of a sudden you, you, you look back an hour later and Westminster's on top. It is. Westminster chipped away at that 20 to zero deficit. Uh, really for the rest of the game, they chased it down slowly and steadily. Um, they finally got over the hump when Cole Konitska found Danny, Den- Denny Dennison, I'm sorry, for a 26-yard touchdown with uh, 114 to play. That's a really gritty win for Westminster. They're coming off of a big win last week at Case Western Reserve. And so now Westminster and W&J, who also won at Case Western Reserve on Saturday, tough week for Case Western. Those two teams look like they are now on track to decide who is the leader of the pack? That's when I fell for leader of the pack. They'll play on October 23rd. That the lead in that game changed hands four times in the final 21 minutes or so. So then the poll comes out on Sunday, and it looks like I can't decide uh, of the people who changed votes from Mary Harden Baylor to North Central. And I think maybe one, maybe from Whitewater to North Central as well. How much of this is like, people consolidating they saw what other people had decided and said oh you know what probably north central makes sense to me or is it because you know mary harden baylor did not uh do what you would expect for uh an elite versus someone in the the next tier in the 1b tier uh at home uh, and maybe it's a little bit of both but uh interesting in that that one point uh margin is now 22 points almost a full ballot spot it is and i think you see the i think you see the um, the pollsters sort of look at those games, the brass bell game that North central won on the road in a hostile environment there and really sort of taking control of that game in the second half versus uh, UMHB having to really fight back in the second half at home against a team that maybe most people I think didn't have ranked as high as Wheaton. So, you know, last week, our Twitter question asked us if, you know, what would UMHB need to do to get back on top to number one? And the answer really was not fall behind by 21 points and have to battle back. And again, we talked about earlier that that second half was incredible. And that is as about as good as I've seen anybody play for a half of football this season, but it's a full 60 minutes. And if UMHB put together two of those second halves, Maybe the poll looks a little bit differently today, uh, but they didn't play a closer game um, against maybe a slightly less strong opponent in the pollster's eyes. And so you have votes drifting toward North central and maybe, yeah, I think we're going to have that top five as it is for quite a while, but I think maybe we're starting to consolidate one and two with our top 25 votes. I think there's only one, of those votes now that live with Mount Union. We're a half hour into this podcast and uh, we're maybe a little bit late to thank our Patreon subscribers, but we're really thankful that you guys exist and you guys help support us over the course of the past year or so. These are the people who have gone to patreon.com slash D3 sports and signed up to support D3 sports.com to the tune of, you know, $3, $5, $10 a month over the course of however many, however many months you choose to do so. It's very helpful for us because it's a kind of a guaranteed minimum amount of uh, you know money that we're going to be able to tap in each individual month in order to you know operate the website and do all the things that it takes to operate the website. So we're very thankful for that. We're thankful for that group, and we hope that you will go take a look and consider joining because there's also some bonus content that these people get. Bonus content on Patreon, a little little something extra for for the for the members. Um, but also, like Pat said, without that support, we don't get to do features during the week. Uh, Brian Lester and Joe Sager have been crushing it with features this season. We're going to get a Riley Zayas feature this week uh, about Brandon Jordan. That's going to be fantastic. And, um, you know, it's our it's our Patreon subscribers that really help fuel that ability to do that content and get that information and those stories out to our audience. 
So if you're interested in doing so, go to patreon.com slash d3sports. Patreon is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. And it's time for game balls, and my game ball is going to go to Joey Moriello. It might not be necessary to say much more than we've already said about the running back for Salve Regina and uh, Kevin Gilmartin said already some things as well. I'm just going to add one more note here. So, you know, we mentioned he scored three fourth quarter touchdowns. One of them was on a broken play shovel pass. He took in traffic, dove for the pylon. Uh, this is a guy who averaged nearly 10 yards a carry and finished with 325 all-purpose yards on Saturday. Also, great durability. This is a guy who's listed at 5'8", 162. So you picture, picture that's a guy who's, you know, making 30 carries on the course of an afternoon against a team like Rowan. That's a guy who's going to take a bit of a pounding. Gets up, keeps right on going, uh, and that's why he gets my game ball. My game ball this week is going to get shared by Jacob Lyle, Camarian Porter, Andre Nesbitt, William Zhang, and Anthony Carano. That is the starting five offensive lineman for Claremont Mudscripts, who cleared the path for Justin Edwards' four-touchdown day in the Stags' 29-21 win over then-number-17 Chapman. Um, the Stags played smash mouth football. They controlled the game on the ground while neutralizing Chapman's All-American linebacker, Dylan Keefe. Uh, Dylan Keefe was limited to just three tackles. No TFL, no hurries, no pass breakups, just three tackles. And that is a, that is a really wild thing if you've ever seen Dylan Keefe play football. He's around it, and he just wasn't on Saturday. Um, this, group of pe- this group of players dominated the line of scrimmage against the Skyac favorite from start to finish and helped deliver not only a top 25 win for the Stags, but also the coveted Fast Track trophy that we invented last week. We invent a trophy every week. If this is your first podcast, stick around. We got one coming up in about, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes or so. Venturing a little further afield for the Off the Beaten Path highlight, and I'm going to take us to Bridgewater. Bridgewater Mass, that is, and uh, Friday night as well. So this game is so far off the beaten path that even if you watch the video, you don't get to see the game-winning touchdown because, you know, the camera doesn't move. But uh, I might be getting ahead of myself just a little bit. Bridgewater State trails in this game 17-14 late in the fourth quarter, and they take over at their own 19 with 4.56 to play. And on a week where we seem to be talking about a lot of long drives, right, this is one of the ones that we foreshadowed earlier. You, with your big fancy D3 education, understand what foreshadowing is all about, people. So the Bears go 11 plays just to get to third and goal from the five, then they get called for a false start. So it's third and goal from the 10. James Cahoon gets sacked, but... Westcon is called for defensive holding, so Bridgewater State gets another shot at the end zone with 13 seconds left, and Cahoon finds Ryan Varia for what sounds like a great catch that we may never see. Here, however, is how it sounded. Pass to Ryan Varia. Caught for the touchdown! Ryan Varia with eight seconds left. The pass is caught. Touchdown for the Bears. Massive, massive play by the Bears. Even after having to drop an end zone earlier, Ryan Varia holds on to this one for the touchdown and the Bears coaches are going wild and so is the sideline 13 plays 81 yards ran off all but the final eight seconds of the clock and Joe Varia who's Ryan's dad and also the head coach and the Bears come away with a 21 to 17 win I'm also going to go to Massachusetts for my off the beaten path highlight Williams traveled to Somerville Massachusetts for a NESCAC tilt with the Tufts Jumbos this game went back and forth all afternoon the lead changed hands three times in the fourth quarter and ended with Williams tying the contest with a field goal with 43 seconds to play. Williams held Tufts to a field goal to open the overtime session. Uh, This was the only overtime game of the weekend, by the way. Uh, The Eves needed just two plays on their overtime possession to get to the Jumbo's four-yard line, setting up this second-and-goal play. Stola set wide against Brandon Jones. Mamoron. He's got it, hands it off, and gets in for the touchdown, and the Williams College Eves have taken this one from the Jumbos here at the Ellis Oval, and a beautiful block to the outside, Joel Nicholas waltzing in for the touchdown. Final score here at the Oval is 32-29. Really tough ending there for the Jumbos. Joel Nicholas, just too much to handle, able to punch it in for the Eves. That was Joel Nicholas going off the left tackle for the game winner. Nicholas ended the game with 99 yards rushing and two touchdowns as the Eves 
go to 2-0 and on the season. Greg is very careful and very specific on pronouncing EFS. That is spelled E-P-H-S, but it is pronounced indeed EFS. I'll save pronunciation 101 for another time. I also want to highlight that call there, Greg, that uh, we dropped in. Uh, props, really, to the Tufts University students calling this game on JumboCast. So Sam Brill and company on the call there. These guys did a really professional job, especially with such a heartbreaking end of the game. I would take these guys over a large percentage of the so-called professional broadcasts who are calling games in Division Three right now. Surprise! For my most surprising result from Saturday, I am headed to the NAC. Where I'm officially resetting my expectations for St. Norbert. Their first year in the league, coming from the Midwest Conference, I expected the Green Knights to be a solid second place behind Aurora. Because Aurora's pretty good. Um, but the first four weeks and the first three games have really belied those expectations. St. Norbert escaped with a home win against Loris in week one. They lost to UW Stout in week two. I mean, there's no shame in that. But they just had no answer for Shaltez Nunnery and the Lakeland offense in week four. By the way, no real answer for the Muskies defense either, which picked off St. Norbert quarterbacks four times. Add to that four fumbles for a not-my-stat-worthy eight turnovers. And it's no surprise that the Green Knights were unable to hang. Even in a 40-8 to win, however, there's always stuff to work on. And for Lakeland, that starts with an eye-opening 22 penalties for 184 yards. That includes three personal fouls, two unsportsmanlike conduct penalties. So I'm going to temper my enthusiasm for Lakeland as well, but it's still a surprising result. Man, that could be, that could be your stat. Not my stat. My most surprising result this week is Albion beating UW-Eau Claire 23-20. Not just surprising to me, five of... Five out of our six quick hit panelists also agreed that this WIAC versus MIAA matchup would favor the division's best conference. Albion opened the game with a 98-yard kickoff return for a touchdown. They followed that with a 49-yard quick strike touchdown to Justin Thomas, and they were out to a 13-0 lead inside of the first three minutes of the game. Uh, the Blue Golds seemed to have settled in after that. They ended up taking a 17-16 lead into halftime, and at this point I figured that the size and strength advantage that most WIAC teams have over most of the other teams in the division that are not in the WIAC uh, would take over and sort of drive this thing out to a, a multi-score, multiple score win for the Blue Golds. Um, Albion was having none of that. Justin Thomas found the end zone again in the third quarter to put Albion back in the lead. And the Britain defense allowed just two first downs for Eau Claire over the final 30 minutes of the game. That was an impressive win for Albion, who has not lost a non-conference game since 2017 to UW Stevens Point. Pronunciation 101. Budavistic. Monon Belt. Budavistic. Gallardi. Muhlenberg. Eau Claire. Eau Claire. Yeah, that's how you pronounce Eau Claire. Absolutely. So if you're an Albion supporter, the question is going to be for you guys, where does Eau Claire finish in the YX standings? The Blue Golds could conceivably end up like anywhere from about fourth in the conference to seventh or eighth. And the significance of that three-point home win really hinges on how Eau Claire does the rest of the way. So be big Blue Golds fans. And that was more difficult to say than it should have been. That's not my stat. Also, not going to be my stat. Not my stat. That may be the most incredible stat. All right, so lots of things are not my stat. About 99.8% of things that happened in Division Three football this week are not my stat. But this one is my stat of the week is uh, George Marinopoulos throwing to 10 receivers in a 41 to nothing win against St. John Fisher. Uh, you know, for, for RPI, is a guy who has already been and is currently the career completion percentage leader in RPI football history, already completing more than 60% of his passes lifetime. Uh, this past weekend, 21 of 25 passing for 252 yards, five touchdowns, all of that in the first three quarters. The reason why I, I talk specifically about uh, him spreading the ball around is that often you see that in terms of running backs, right? You are trying to run the clock out and you have 12 to 15 guys run the ball, including maybe your senior offensive lineman, that sort of thing, right? Who's, uh, you know, getting his one chance to touch the ball in his, in his career. Um, that is, it's a little bit different. You got to have 10 guys catch the ball. And that was one of the things that kind of jumped off the page at me. Uh, also, just jumping off the page at me is uh, the fact that they beat St. John Fisher 41 to nothing. You know, Fisher had some interesting results that made, made maybe perhaps they looked pretty good this year. It was a little bit hard to tell. Um, they played much closer against Hobart, for example, than, uh, than RPI played against St. John Fisher on Saturday. RPI looked really good. Now, 
And also, we usually, as an organization, try to stay out of the clickbaity uproars of the week on Twitter, but um, I do want to come down on the side of the families of RPI football players. Um, you know, usually uh, athletic department people know, and I've worked in athletic departments, you know, when parents complain, usually that's a pain in the butt for, for the people who are actually working, but they have a point here. So they have not been allowed to get into the stadium. And I'm not sure, although we do not know the attendance policies of all 239 division three football teams, I am not sure that there's anywhere else that is not currently letting anybody other than students into the uh, into the stadium this is a big stadium that was built about maybe 10 years ago Opened about 10 years ago the east campus athletic field or uh, ecav so i guess i don't remember what v stands for village east campus campus athletic village this place seats 5200 people i would have to think that the parents of 100 or so rpi football players could easily socially distance themselves in this pretty cavernous stadium if uh, if they chose, if the university, uh, if, if the institute, I guess, uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, if they chose to do so. But not only are they not doing that, so the uh, families have had to watch from a hill outside the stadium, the university took away the portable restrooms that were on that was that were out there on those on that hill that parents had used in a previous weekend or so. And that just seems, and I said this on Twitter, that just seems really, really petty. And this is not, obviously, this is not an athletics decision. You know, anything that's this stupid has to come from somewhere on campus where lawyers are involved or people pretending to think they like, think like lawyers are involved. This is pretty effing ridiculous. And I'm coming down on the side of RPI uh, families right here. But also, yeah, George Marinopoulos, that's my stat of the week. Central served up an all-you-can-eat buffet of stats of the week in there, 84 to 10. <laughs> I'm going to start over. Man. I'm sorry. It's just like, <laughs> Greg is trying really hard to be professional and follow oh, up man. my rant with something super footballish. Oh. And uh, and I was just laughing really hard with the mic off at uh, at Greg's attempts to be professional. Oh, but just like let them, ha- let them have some toilets, man. Like that's just decent. All right. Right. I mean, they shouldn't have to go pee in the woods, for goodness sake. I'm pretty sure this is not the 1890s. It is It is literally the least you can do to, like, make it workable. Yeah, exactly. Literally the least. Central served up an all-you-can-eat buffet of stats of the week in their 84-16 to win over Simpson. The Dutch scored 56 points in the first half with just 7 minutes and 26 seconds of possession time. The 84 points are a school record. Central's totals of 789 yards of offense and 556 passing yards are American Rivers Conference records. These are all fine stats, but they will not be my stat of the week. Central quarterback Blaine Hawkins set school records in this game with 424 yards of passing and seven touchdowns, completing 22 of his 24 attempts in the first half. And that is my stat of the week. And I guess sometimes it's okay to not go the full 60 after all. I suppose at some point in an 84 to 16 win or a 56 to three halftime lead, maybe not everybody has to go all 60. Uh, We put this in the game story. We got it from central, uh, but I just want to reiterate it for the audience here. The, the, these first half drives, four plays, 46 seconds, five plays, a minute, 11, three plays, 27 seconds, five plays, a buck, nine, two plays, 15 seconds, six plays, two fifteen, one play, 14 seconds, three plays, 39 seconds. Uh, that is the entirety of possessions in the first half for central. And that is, the, that is the second time this year that Simpson has given up 80 and that that's tough. Your categories have become tiresome. Now's the time on sprockets where we dance. <laughs> Now is the time of the podcast where we go to Twitter. You know how it works, or at least if you know how Twitter works, what we do is we post a tweet, and a tweet is usually like a short message of 280 characters or less. Maybe that's more information than you really need about Twitter, but uh, we put that call out there to solicit questions for this seg- segment of our podcast, typically on Sunday afternoons or early evenings, and we got this from Ron Clemens, which is at rclemens3dp, asking, is Howard Payne's 4-0 start? and beating East Texas Baptist the biggest surprise in D3 football so far this season. Any other teams made a comparable leap forward? 
going 4-0 compared to last week going 3-0 is not a surprise to us, I would say, because you know we went out and after they went 3-0, we solicited a feature story on Howard Payne to put on the website this week because we knew clearly they're doing pretty well. Jason Bachtel is doing a good job right there. Uh, obviously, they've won 9 out of 12 uh, as a uh, over the course of the last three partial seasons, and I know one of those was before Bachtel took the job, but they looked pretty good in the spring, and they're 4-0 here so far. And, you know, they beat East Texas Baptist, who I think people probably considered the consensus number three in the conference before the week started. So that is a certainly a big leap forward for them. Interested, though, the question about who else has made big leaps forward. I think about, uh, you know, someone who we've already talked about in this podcast, Salve Regina, which uh, is 4-0 and has matched its win total from 2019. They went 4-6. and um, but it's not really uh, it's not really new for Salve. They've been good enough to be in this position in the past. Uh, I'm interested to see you know who else you might think about too, Greg, and who might be on that list. The, the biggest surprise I think so far this season for me is still the Ursinus over Muhlenberg um, at Muhlenberg, and that's the, probably the biggest single surprise result. Um, I think you have to look at Albion. Uh, who we also talked about earlier in the podcast, uh, Albion, you know, they've, they're now four and O and the MIAA really is having a good season overall, but Albion is four and O they've got, um, you know, they've got some really dynamic weapons on offense with Kyle Thomas and Justin Thomas in particular, Justin Thomas is a, a really dynamic receiver for Albion. You know they're they're set up well now, and I think that that win against Eau Claire, even if Wisconsin Eau Claire winds up six, seven, or eight in the WIAC, I think anytime you beat a WIAC team, that's a good win. Um, I think they're set up for success in the MIAA. Another team that we're looking at is maybe Chicago. Chicago in the Midwest Conference, they won the Founders Cup against Washington University in Week One um, by a significant margin. Uh, they're their other games, as I recall, just doing this off the top of my head here, have been really, uh, really lopsided. You know, with St. Norbert out of the Midwest Conference, you're really setting up a Chicago-Monmouth situation there for all the marbles in the Midwest Conference. Um, Coach Catanzaro might might disagree with me on that. Coach Ernst at Rippon might want to play in that, uh, in that field too, yeah. Um, but yeah, Chicago has been really impressive and they look as good as they have in quite some time as well. I think if I had to pick one more team to maybe put on this list, and obviously there's some teams that we've already talked about uh, in this podcast, but I think I would look at Cal Lutheran too. I, you know, obviously they haven't, uh, they're not into conference play yet, but uh, you know, handily beat Southwestern, which, you know, uh, Southwestern had been struggling a little bit. They beat uh, Pacific Lutheran. They won at Puget Sound. Obviously, none of that makes a wit a uh, bit of difference in the SkyX standings. Uh, they start with uh, start conference play with Laverne, then they go to Pomona Pitzer and Chapman. But uh, you know, at least it's a good start for the Kingsmen, who we haven't had much reason to talk much about in the course of the last how many years now has it been since they went to the playoffs back in 2012? Uh, they had that run of four straight unbeaten years in the Skyak and then kind of fell back to 500 after that. Yeah. And I mean, I think we learned this weekend that the Skyak might be a little more open than, than we thought. We'll see how Chapman responds after, after their loss, which was not a conference game, by the way. If you have questions for us, you know how to do it. Now do the Twitter thing. We put the tweet out. If you follow the D3FB hashtag or, you know, follow us, then you'll probably see those things. Moving on to what we're looking at for week five, and it's time for games to watch. And my game to keep an eye on in week five is Wartburg at number 13 Central. So Wartburg kind of slipped firmly off the national radar after that loss at Gustavus Adolphus in week two. Then they went on their bye week, and then they beat Coe on Saturday, 28-7. So the defense that kept the late great Michael Veldman somewhat in check in week two will face a bigger challenge on Saturday in trying to corral the Dutch, who did all the things that Greg talked about just a few minutes ago when they crushed Simpson. Blaine Hawkins and company have not been held under five 560 yards of total offense in a single game so far this season, but that is highly recommended if wanting to defeat them. And I should say Michael Veldman is not actually dead, but of course he uh, got knocked out in the first uh, quarter of their game against Concordia Moorhead. And as uh, Greg noted to me earlier today, or maybe yesterday, ended the game on crutches on the sidelines. Yeah, tough break for Michael Veldman. He's, you know, 
we don't know if it's a break, but yes, we we don't. We we hope he's a, we hope he's able to come back and, and play again this season. Um, but if not, he could probably qualify for another medical redshirt from the looks of it. My game of the week this week is number twenty one Hobart at number seventeen Ithaca. Two of the Liberty League's four undefeated teams square off at Butterfield Stadium to get conference play started. I've been waiting to see Hobart play against a team with a little better quality than they've seen in September. So this will be a top 25 barometer of sorts for the Statesman. Hobart has been scoring well this season, averaging 44 points per game. Ithaca's defense will be a big step up for Hobart. And I'm watching to see if they'll be able to control the game on the ground. They rush currently for 253 yards per game, uh, the way that they have over the first four weeks. This is the first game in what should be a really fun four-way chase for that little Liberty League title between Ithaca, Hobart, Union, and RPI. Roulette's wheel is spinning. It has 113 numbers. Which one is it going to fall on? It's going to land on 71. 71 is... Oh, 71 is Gustavus at Bethel. That's a game we probably should be talking about Anyway, so Gustavus at Bethel is a pretty key game for uh, the, you know, in the MIAC chase. And I should mention, you know, if if people are not familiar with the fact that the MIAC is now uh, in divisions this year, that's uh, super important and good to know, right? So, uh, So a game between Gustavus and Bethel is not a divisional game or is not a game in the conference division. Uh, Bethel and Gustavus certainly could meet again. Gustavus has its, uh, Gustavus and St. John's are in the same side of the conference. Bethel is in the side of the conference with mostly uh, teams in the Minneapolis-St. Paul metropolitan area, along with Concordia-Moorhead. I have stalled for time so that Greg can tell us a little bit about Gustavus, for example, and about the guy who stepped in a quarterback. And I should say, too, we have to come up with a rivalry or a trophy for this one and i'm pretty sure i know where i want to go but let's talk about the game first on saturday gustavus adolphus hosted concordia moorhead and as we said michael veldman uh left the game after the first series uh his replacement jake breitbach came in and was quite serviceable he went 17 of 22 for 212 yards uh he rushed also for 83 yards and a touchdown in Gustavus Adolphus 36 to 21 win over uh, Concordia Moorhead. So, you know, offensively, Gustavus didn't miss a whole lot. Uh, they did, you know, manage only 470 yards of offense, but really, you know, they really, you know, they put up 36 points. They did it and they defeated Concordia Moorhead after a week off. And now, We'll see if Michael Veldman is able to come back next week. I, you know, I don't want to speculate, but if they have to use Jake Reebok again, I think they're in a good position uh, to remain successful offensively. But Bethel's defense, as we know, is quite good. St. John's did find some some room on them on Saturday. Well, and on the Bethel side too. So Bethel's got uh, some size uh, at the quarterback position, which is a bit unusual for Division Three. Uh, Jaron Rosti, who's now a junior quarterback for them, six four two twenty. That's a guy who's really difficult to bring down. Um, you know, the big receiver for them is Joey Kidder, a guy who also plays basketball. He's six three two zero five. So there's a little bit of uh, a little bit of size there. That you know, when St. John's was trying to put this game away. Uh, it just seemed like Bethel was able to break some big plays. Uh, Kidder with the 58-yard touchdown pass or touchdown catch, you know, late in the fourth quarter to stay in that game. Now, Bethel is, you know, traditionally uh, seen as a as a more of a defensive-minded team and maybe more of a run game-minded team. And Rossi will definitely bring the ball down and run with it. And he's, like I said, dangerous and hard to bring down. But they are also willing to put the ball in the air as well. Yes, and for Gustavus Adolphus, their main offensive weapon is going to be Dalton Thielen. Um, he is sort of a dual-threat guy. He runs, he receives. Uh, last week, he carried 10 times for 76 yards, caught nine balls for 124 yards. I think Dalton Thielen had the big 77-yard touchdown against Wartburg um, that that really helped Gustavus Adolphus uh, establish some offense in that game. So, you know, it... This this is a good game. This could, I mean, Gustavus is right on the edge of the top twenty-five. This could this could have easily have been a top twenty-five matchup this week. 
That sounds like a guy you want in your points per reception league for sure. Um, so here's my thinking about this: uh, the the trophy for this game or the rivalry uh, trophy for this game. Bethel's the Royals, and then the university kind of logo for Gustavus is these three crowns for Gustavus Adolphus, who was king of something. Uh, I don't pretend to want to know. So I think this has got to be the Royal Crown game. What do you think? I think that sounds perfect. So the Royal Crown game on Saturday between Bethel and Gustavus Adolphus with uh, second billing, perhaps, in the MIAC on the line. That's our random game of the week. Now it's time to go on the spot. Here's my on the spot challenge for you, Greg, for this week. And it actually dovetails very nicely off of the off of the uh, random game. So I want you to pick winners in three games this week, but you have to name the mascots as if they were MIAC teams. So, for example, let's say we are picking the game between Salve Regina and Western New England. So you would have to say the 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 Reginas or the Salves defeat the Westerns. I don't know. I, you know I, I didn't ask you to pick the score, so I guess you, you get away with that. For people who don't know, the basically you've got the John, the Johnnies of St. John's, you have got the Oles of St. Olaf, uh, you know, you used to have the Tommies of St. Thomas, there were, and the Gusties of Gustavus Adolphus, not a t- the Augies of Augsburg. I could continue, but I'm going to stop because there's just not a lot of um, originality in some of those names. Uh, so you get to pick three games and give me winners in the form of an MIAC team. Wow. All right. I had to scroll up to uh, week five. It's week five already. It is week five. It was a long September. All right. So the the first one that I'm going to take here is I'm going to take the Wheaton Wheaties over the Wheaties over Wash U, the Washies. <laughs> the Wheaties and the Washies. I think people refer to Wheaton as the Wheaties anyway, so there you go. Perfect. All right, I'm going to go with the Case Western Reserve Cases over the St. Vincent Vinnies. The Vinnies sound like they absolutely fit very much in the MIAC standings. If you had called, uh, if you had uh, talked about the Case Western Reserve Reservers, I would have asked if you were talking about their JV team. I'm going to go with the uh, the Howard Payne Howies over the Sol Ross State Sullies for my final <laughs> my final if they were in the I, Mayak in the Mayak multiverse um <laughs> games. How he's I how he's this, over the Sullies. I expected this to be silly. I think it lived up to its billing. All right, so we've got the Wheaties over the Washies, and then we have the cases over the Vinnies, and we have the Howies over the Sullies. Pat, my on the spot is going to be, uh, this week we have five groups of Spartans playing football and we have five groups of Knights playing football. And I want you to tell me which group of soldiery people are going to win more games. Ooh, I like this. Very nice. So the, 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 the multiple uh, Spartanses, the collective... Not the collective Spartans, that would be a completely different thing, but the five Spartans who are Aurora, Case Western Reserve, Castleton, Dubuque, and Manchester, and then comparing them to the various Knigets who are Carlton and Martin Luther and Southern Virginia and St. Norbert and Wartburg. Okay. Yes, I did include St. Norbert. The, they are green knights, but they are welcome to this party because it evens the it evens the teams. So this group of knights games is very difficult to pick. We've got Carlton versus McAllister. I think that's kind of a pick'em game. Carlton's played very well this season, but against the likes of Crown, uh, doesn't necessarily. Uh, I don't know how that necessarily matches up. We got Martin Martin Luther against Greenville. Greenville's obviously looked very good. Martin Luther's been pretty good in the last couple of years. Southern Virginia against Maryville. I think it's one game where I would probably clearly favor Maryville and I clearly favor Central over Wartburg. And, you know, based off of things that I said 25 minutes ago, I have to favor uh, Benedictine over St. Norbert. So since I feel like on the Spartan side, I have three games that I can pretty much count on Spartans to win. I'm going to go with the Spartans beating the Knights 
in this set of mythical head-to-head battles. Like I'm picturing Aurora over Wisconsin Lutheran, Case Western Reserve over St. Vincent, um, and Dubuque over Buena Vista. Buena Vista! I think Franklin probably takes Manchester. And then C- Castleton and SUNY Maritime, kind of a pick kind of a toss-up. But I don't think I need that in order to take the Spartans over the Knights this week. At our spot check on last week's results, I asked Greg to take the two games involving teams playing their first games of the season, and that was Augsburg at St. Scholastica and Gallaudet at Greensboro, then to pick a winner in the number of total points. And well, Greg picked Greensboro and 24 points, but Gallaudet won 49-42, and let you math majors figure that one out. He also picked St. Scholastica and 63 points, but Augsburg won 54-14. Greg, I didn't I forgot to make notes. What was I supposed to do with these exact same two games? Due to time constraints, we are moving. (laughs) Um, uh, I asked you to pick winners in games featuring our two teams that played their first game yesterday, and you picked the exact opposite of me, which was the exact right thing to do. Uh, Scholastica lost roundly, and I mean, I believe you gave them that's a no from me, dog, immediately. And uh, Gallaudet survived a late and furious Greensboro rally to win their season opener, 49 to 42. I'll take the W on that one. Usually it's a, usually it's a toss up or a push. I'll take the W. No, I got Simpsoned on that one. Go! We're just a few weeks into the season. I have some thoughts. Every thought of yours is a friend of mine. Mark Simon was a columnist for our site, uh, you know, back in the day he and i used to remark to each other about instances where teams matched or exceeded their win totals from the previous year for example i mentioned earlier that salvia regina at 4-0 matched their win total from the last time they had a season back in 2019 when they went four and six so that's something that can absolutely happen in september in this case though i'm talking about a program that matched the most wins that the program has ever had in its history of football and that's Anna Maria, which beat Coast Guard on Saturday to improve to 2-1 and one and has never won more than two games in any season. Big plays for the AmCats on Saturday include Donovan Johnson returning a blocked field goal for a touchdown and then two different quarterbacks throwing long touchdown passes to DeAndre Wallace in the final quarter plus of a 29-24 win at Coast Guard. After one month of this season, 44 undefeated teams remain, many of them in conferences that will not begin conference play until this Saturday, meaning that additional loss column attrition is guaranteed. Teams still carrying those undefeated records, Albion, Salve Regina, they have positioned themselves to perhaps be surprise postseason hosts if they can handle their conference business the way that they handled their out-of-conference business. I'm sure they're taking care of that business as we speak, and I'm going to add loss column attrition to pull balloting potential energy or whatever the the, uh, the the phrase was from a couple of weeks ago. There's uh, things that are being brought to this podcast that I had not considered before. Going off the beaten path again, but I didn't want to gloss over what might be the best Division Three victory in the history of the Alfred State football program. Pioneers have been in D3 since 2013, and a large number, a large number of their wins are against programs that just simply don't exist anymore. Alfred State has won nine games in that time. Two of those wins are against non-D3 programs, and three more are against Maranatha Baptist and Mount Ida. One of those dropped football, and the other closed. So when the Pioneers went to defiance and won on Saturday on a Jake Palmer touchdown run with 15 seconds left, that may well be the biggest win in the history of the program, at least since it left the junior college ranks uh, eight years ago. I'm going to leave it to others to debate whether this week's win or the 2019 win against Rochester is the biggest, but this is a pretty big win. It's a long trip, and they come away with a W. And speaking of defiance, after one month of this season, 41 winless teams remain. There are many of the usual suspects on this list of 41, but some do really stand out. Two teams that our 20 questions panel were high on, Rowan and Stevenson, have not cracked the win column yet. And Illinois Wesleyan sits uncharacteristically at 0-3 after giving up 62 points to Carthage this weekend. Rowan, luckily, has a clean and jack slate to start from this week. But for teams like Illinois Wesleyan and Stevenson, whose postseason hopes are all but done before we got out of September, uh, salvaging something positive from this season is going to be difficult. That is just the sort of ruthless nature of Division III's short season and the very exclusive postseason access. I guess Illinois Wesleyan can still play for what you termed the Butterburger Bowl, and I much prefer that to the Culver's Isthmus Bowl, which is the official name of that uh, of that postseason game between runners-up in the CCIW and Wyack. That's true. They are. They could. They could turn it around, get up to third place in in the in the league, and and go play in the Isthmus Bowl. 
from the if there's no box score and no game story posted does it make it sound department we're talking about Loris defeating Nebraska Wesleyan 31 to 30 on Saturday I wouldn't know anything about this game necessarily except I was working on scoreboard updates and happened to tune in just at the right time to see Loris knock away a Hail Mary in the end zone on the final play of the game I also tuned in because if I remember correctly there were no live stats uh, link posted for that game 78 out of the 95 games from this weekend have box scores so far posted on our site and, and there are many fewer game stories. I promise we read every game story uh, in order to prepare for this podcast, in order to put together the stuff that we write on the game on Saturday uh, on Saturday night. So if you want to get your players known by us so that we can talk about them on the site in this podcast and maybe have them better known come all region time at the end of the year, post that info. Thank you. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 287, released on September 27th of 2021. Thanks for listening, and keep an eye out for our continuing coverage throughout the season. You can support production of this podcast and production of an entire family of websites put out by D3Sports.com in general by visiting patreon.com slash D3Sports. But even if you can't afford to support us financially, you can help us out by telling a friend, a classmate, a fellow alumnus, you know, other people at the tailgate, other people in your parents' group on Facebook. You tell them about this podcast, and you can rate and review us in the various places where people do those sorts of things like rating and reviewing podcasts you can reach us to talk more about division three football on twitter using the d3fb hashtag i'm at d3football greg is at wally wabash and if you want to wish keith well you can do that at d3keith he still pays attention to division three football i promise you we have a message board devoted to division three sports as well did you know you could join the conversation by registering a post at d3boards.com and you can follow d3football.com on facebook the executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more of his tracks as well. You can find those at djmentos.com as well as on Spotify. Thanks to Kevin Gilmartin for joining us here on the podcast this week. And thanks to Greg Thomas, my co-host. Also thanks to the originator of Around the Nation on d3football.com, Keith McGillan. No, there wasn't a lot of... Um standalone safeties out there that had been a thing for a while but it didn't really happen this week one over we're definitely out of one overtime game scores weren't weird things are settling down this is nature healing nature's healing we were definitely on a run of safeties and i think you're i think it's i think it's sloppy play right i think by the time we get to week four week five uh people who haven't played football in a year and a half start to make more plays oh randolph macon had a Almost, uh, almost got a safety. WNL, I think that was a Randolph making game. Yes, it was. WNL had a bad snap. The punter kicked the ball from the two out of the back of the end zone. Randolph Macon could have had a safety. Instead, they took the ball at the spot of that foul and went in for a touchdown. They could have had two points and the ball. I don't know. I don't know how. They, I don't know how that works. They took two points off the board, right? <laughs> they did, and they would have got the ball back wherever the free kick and return would have been, right? So you get two points, but no guarantee that you're going to get seven. You go for an almost sure seven. I guess yeah. I could see that. We watched uh, UW-Eau Claire take three points off the board um, when they kicked a field goal, and then uh, there was an offsides penalty, I think, against Albion, and uh, they took the points off the board, and they went for six, and they got it. They did. You get Sometimes coaching is about gambling. Got to go with the instincts. Yes, I don't think the card tells you what to do in that situation, right? It, it probably does at higher levels where you have somebody with a six-figure payroll who just does that. and Someone from MIT, right? Yes, exactly. There'll be a time to, uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time.